All right. But right now, this thing, this little thing I'm doing right here, is kind of a placeholder because I've got a really exciting new sponsor that's starting up soon for a pretty short trial run. But I think you're going to dig them, and I just want you to get used to this idea that we might just be starting the show with a little ad, a little riff, if you will, before we dive into the teaser, say, like, right now. I've read a little too much Hemingway, uh, <laughs> a, little, a little too recently, a movable feast, packed on my bags, and I moved to Paris. My, my, my. How goes it, CNFers? You know what time it is. This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I talk to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. Hey, this is my podcast. Be sure you're subscribed to the weekly party. No RSVP needed. Wherever you get your podcast, we're talking Apple, Spotify, Google, Pocket Cast. That's what I, where I listen to my podcasts is on Pocket Casts. And keep the conversation going on social media at CNF Pod across them all. I'd love to hear from you. Tag me, and I'll give you those old digital fist bumps or whatever, and we'll just talk shop. That's what it's there for. It's horrible for promoting stuff, but it's great for engaging one to one. I'm happy to do it. This week's guest is Neil Bascom, the author of Faster How a Jewish Driver, an American Heiress, and a Legendary Car. Beat Hitler's best, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I feel like I'm a company shill for them, but they send me great books with amazing authors, so whatever. And you know something? No matter the week, I think come Thursday night when I'm packaging this, this MFA, when I'm recording my intros and, of course, my outros, it's time to celebrate, right? Getting this thing together is often no shorter than a miracle. It's like what Lorne Michaels says about SNL. We don't go on because it's perfect. We go on because it's 11.30. And then after the show, they're all kinds of happy. You know, it could have been a great show, but they got it done. It doesn't matter. I think even NFL teams, even if they win ugly, at least they won. And they celebrate that. It doesn't matter if they did it in style. They won, and that's a reason to break out the axe and shred. So I think I'm going to break out my version of the axe in shred. This frothy number, cheers, is RPM IPA from Boneyard, brewing out of Bend, Oregon. And why shouldn't we celebrate bringing another hot episode straight to your brain? In this episode... We talk about Neil's rigorous attention to research, how he uses Microsoft Excel to organize it all, the essay he wrote as a kid that gave him the juice he needed to pursue writing, writing several failed novels, moving to Paris, and ultimately locking into the trip that is narrative nonfiction. You're going to dig this one. I guarantee. He was born in Denver, Denver, grew up in St. Louis, played a whole lot of hockey, loves the St. Louis blues, and he is here to rock and roll. So let's hit it, CNFers, with a woo! St. Louis, so uh, at what point, uh, you know, what... You know, what kind of crew are you running with? Like, at what point are you starting to get sort of that maybe a literary bug, a literary virus uh, uh, sort of inoculated in you? I, I, I was a big reader <laughs> growing up. I mean, I would spend hours reading, you know, mostly the sort of fantasy fiction, you know, Lord of the Rings, C.S. Lewis kind of genre and just read uh, all the time. Uh, in fact, my parents would often be like, you know, get out of the door, you know, go outside. <laughs> so I was always a big reader. I remember, you know, I was actually a big programmer, uh, computer programmer mm -hmm. growing up. Uh, again, you know, parents are like, get out of the house, <laughs> get out <laughs> of your room. So, you know, I would do those sort of things. And, and, and in fact, the first thing I ever wrote that I tried to publish was a a review of some 
fantasy computer game, uh, bizarrely. This was, I, I gosh, I, I must have been 10 years old, 11 years old, submitting this to a magazine, you know, sort of mm. hoping for, for a good answer uh, and received a sort of a, a polite, you know, you're obviously a kid. <laughs> why, why are you <laughs> sending me a review? Uh, you know, pra- praising the writing nicely, but sort of like, you know, not really. So um, <laughs> I never really thought about being a writer or what that would be like until ninth grade when I, I actually just posted this a while ago on my Facebook. And I, I had this great English teacher named Mrs. Barkley and she had a writing assignment for, for us to write about a place that was special to us. Um, and so I chose this valley uh, that uh, that's about a couple hours outside of St. Louis. My, I had this core group of four or five guys. Uh, they had older brothers and we would go out with the older brothers camping for, for long weekends. Uh, just, just us. I mean, all of us in high school uh, and, you know, shoot guns and, and hunt and uh, camp, you know, four seasons a year, uh, often in the snow. And we would go to this particular valley to, uh, to fish. And it just was a really special place for me, uh, particularly because it was freedom for me mm. uh, and friendship and camaraderie. And so I wrote about that uh, in this really, you know, using every adverb I could find <laughs> and, <laughs> and really, you know, uh, flowering it up a lot. But I remember painstakingly, you know, line writing, line by line writing and revising and wanting to create something that, that was really good. And, you know, after I submitted to my, my Mrs. Barkley, she brought me after class and just was, you know, praised it and said, you know, this is really extraordinary and I want to submit it to a national contest. And, and I, you know, have you ever thought about being a writer? And that was kind of the, if, if there was a, a crystallist moment, that was, that was probably it. So probably soon after that, I, I, and then I, you know, was reading more sort of literary fiction, of course, when you're in high school and, and reading, you know, got away from fantasy novels and, and, and reading other wide range of, of fiction. And uh, I think soon after high school, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, I, although I thought I, wa- I wanted to be a novelist. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of people who who write narrative nonfiction, I think at, at first, I think novels just hit us first, and we're like, "Oh, that's the thing I want to do." And then you kind of, but then you kind of realize you're up against, well, or, or actually, you just kind of maybe stumble upon some narrative nonfiction. You're like, "Oh, I can do this," and maybe you know, work for a newspaper or maybe a magazine, and then it it feels like you're getting paid to do this thing instead of going out on a lark hoping to get this novel published on spec or something. So I, I don't know, maybe it feels more tangible when you can you can pivot to the journalism and the narrative nonfiction and it feels maybe more uh something like you can actually grasp versus the novel seems kind of a I don't know, ethereal in a way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean I, I will say that sort of uh failure led me to and I say this I love what I do. I love writing uh, narrative nonfiction. So that's the perfect thing for me. But failure led me there in, in many ways. Like I really took the novelist ambition pretty seriously. You know, when I, I remember graduating college and, you know, my father is a very uh, practical person, um, you know, sort of middle-class upbringing he had, you know, and, and so, you know, it was all about getting good, stable job, uh, raising a family, living in St. Louis. And, you know, he told me very clearly after I graduated college, like, it's great that you want to write, but you need to get a real job. Mm. And so, and now that I'm a father and I'm 50, almost 50 years old, and I have children, like, I understand where he was coming from. You know, that was said out of, out of wanting me to have a have a stable life uh which i understand but it was crushing uh, right (laughs) at that age right i mean absolutely crushing 
And so I became a journalist, uh, to your point, um, right out, out of college. I, during my summer of my junior year, I, I worked at a magazine in London called Euro Money Magazine. And at the end of that summer, they offered me a job once I graduated college. So as soon as I graduated college from Miami University in Ohio, I, I got on a plane um, and moved to London and was there writing, researching first and then writing. And then in Dublin, I did the same thing. And then I moved back. I moved to New York because I wanted to be a, a writer. And I thought that was the place to be. And, but I didn't know how to do it. Uh, and so I ended up deciding my best move was to become a book editor and learn, you know, uh, how to, how to be a writer, how to write books, uh, be a sort of immersed in that world. And so I became a, you know, an editor at St. Martin's press or an editorial assistant, which is basically a secretary and, uh, and then, you know, making my way up to editor over four years, but all through that time, the, the point is, uh, as I meander was that I was at, at night, I was writing novels. Um, I was writing John le Carre like novels. I was writing, uh, Stephen King, like horror novels. I was writing John Grisham legal thrillers. I was writing, you know, mm -hmm. all these genre novels that you know i thought i had a great idea about the united nations and the thriller set there um and then various other ones and i would write every night at a coffee shop for a couple hours and i was producing roughly a novel every year and i would submit them uh, and i was in the business at that point submit them to friends and uh, who were editors or agents and you know they just, they just didn't work. They were terrible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so after about four years of doing, I think I wrote three or four, not four novels over, over four years, I decided, you know what? I can't do this genre fiction. Like I need to, I need to write the great American novel. So I, so I packed up my bags. Uh, I read a little too much Hemingway. Uh, a little, little too recently a movable feast packed on my bags and I moved to Paris uh, I didn't speak a lick of French um, but I decided that I had <laughs> I had to I, I laugh about it thinking about it now um, but that I had to live in Paris and, and, and write the great American novel so I did that uh, and it was terrible <laughs> <laughs> it was called Chasing Blue and you know it was like most first novel first sort of literary novels written by people it was you know it, <laughs> it was an autobiography in some senses yeah. so it was it was bad i didn't think it was bad i thought it was great of course um that's the thing you kind of need if you're a writer you have to think your stuff is really good or i don't think you could wake up in the morning and submitted to people and friends who were editors and who i knew knew their stuff and you know and they just th thought it wasn't very good and i was just crushed and i was like why can't i do this like i feel like i'm a good writer like i just can't get this right and i moved back to new york and so i'd failed as a novelist is, is, is the point and and then a friend of mine who was an agent uh, scott waxman uh, who's a very good agent in new york and was a friend of mine said uh you know, I have this story about these architects in New York, and you know, in 1929, who were former partners and then became rivals, and they each ended up being assigned to to design and build the tallest building in the world at the same time, which was the Chrysler Building and the Bank of Manhattan Building. And he's like, "It's a true story." You know, I know you want to write novels, but like, you should see if you could write this. And I put together a proposal, gave it to him and, you know, it just worked. Like whatever it is of my style of writing, my style of research, like it sold right away. It sold well, it won awards and, you know, and I've, everything I've done since has been 
very, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but it's been easy. Like this mm-hmm. is what I should be writing. I, I love the the iterations of the, the fact that you wrote so many novels that you know on the surface, yeah, they you know they they failed, but not every word was wasted because it got you to a point of proficiency and skill that when you locked into the thing that you were really supposed to do, it's like it seemed almost like the the skids were greased in a sense, because you you were able to lock into story. You had that practice. You put in the rigor, the hours after work, when your eyes are already bleary from reading manuscripts all day, you still made the time to do your work. So you had this muscle built up, even though it wasn't, it didn't come to the fruition that you had hoped. But that said, when you were able to lock into this nonfiction story, it, you know, it clicked, like you said, it clicked. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, in many respects, it was effortless, which writing fiction was not <laughs> for me yeah you know uh, not that writing nonfiction is is in any way simple like i still labor over it just like i did that first story the valley but i very seldom do i have to rewrite something or in in terms of struggling over how to construct a, a certain paragraph or how to approach a, a individual uh character the person that i'm writing about uh, as i did in in con- you know in contrast to fiction well and i think a lot of that has to do with the the immense detail you pay to research and you know uh, setting yourself up so the writing is is for lack of a better term the writing is easy given how much heft you put behind it in terms of how you go about structure and research and putting it into an excel spreadsheet so maybe you can elaborate on that just the the sheer volume that you're doing to set up the writing and make the writing the fun, easy part, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I kind of look at it, you know, my work as a narrative nonfiction writer, like it's, it's, well, it's really three jobs in one if you put it, put it out because you, you got to come out and publicize and be out there and market your books and, and talk about them. Um, that's a part of the job. But um, the sort of two key essential parts of the job are one, the, the, the research and the other is, is the writing. And for me, the books generally take two to three years, depending on, on the particular project. And I would say 60% of that time is spent researching. 30% is probably writing and 10% is, is, is rewriting. And that 60% is, 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 as you say, like, you know, becoming so immersed into the particular world that I'm writing about. Let's take Faster as an example. My most recent book about Grand Prix racing in the 1930s. It was, you know, I wasn't a car guy. I didn't know a lot about French race cars in the 1930s, uh, nor the drivers. But you have to inhabit the world. You have to inhabit the language. You have to inhabit the characters and so that is a process of of you know hoovering up information um and just reading a ton like there's just no way around it as as far as i see and you know i love the research and i you know i could spend hours in a library reading or an archive or doing interviews or going through material i love that part every bit as much as, as the writing. And it's a very different brain cut part of the brain that you're exercising in, in, in doing that. It's detective work. It's collaboration. Cause I often work with research assistants and because most of my books are set overseas. And so I have people on the ground that I'm working with and collaborating with, and it's just spending time, you know, gathering up the details. What, what, uh, you know, what would the, what was the weather like? What was, you know, in the case of faster, you know, what did these engines sound like? Uh, how did they feel in your hands when you were gripping the steering wheel? Like, what happens before a race starts? What are the movements? What's the the orchestration uh, of these of these races? Uh, what are the audiences doing? Um, you know, how do these race cars sort of move together through a circuit that threads itself through a tight city? Uh, what's the date, what are the most dangerous parts? And, you know, that takes a lot of reading, uh, of contemporaneous, uh, coverage of, of the races or the race car drivers, uh, but also takes, you know, walking the courses yourself and feeling the contour, 
We're seeing the contours of, of the streets, uh, of the race courses. And that's, that's all like super fun for me because I know when I'm sitting down, when I've done with the research and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm writing, like I need that detail and I need it at hand because I, I don't want to have to do, because I'm in a different world at that point. I'm in the world of trying to write and trying to construct a narrative that's moving quickly. I can't divert my brain from that to, you know, going to a library and looking for particular detail. I have to have it all there. So I never start writing until I have more than everything I need, like so much more. And I'm sure you've had um, other guests on here that, that say, you know, I probably have 10 times the amount of material that I ever shoehorn into a book. And, you know, that's the case. Like you just, you never know exactly what you need <laughs> until you're actually writing. Yeah. Um, but for me, I, I, I feel like I viscerally need to know how everything sounds, smells, looks, you know, taste may be taking it too far. Um, but I need to have as much as possible. Coupled with that, just because of your question about the Excel, like coupled with that is, and that I could totally, you know, uh, weird out on this kind of thing. I love it. Uh, I, I love it when people weird out on their on their on their habits of how they how they go about it. It's just like Nomar Garcia Para, like tugging at his batting gloves, tapping his toes yeah. in the batter's box. It's like whatever you need to do to get into the right headspace to hit that ball or or to write a book. Like I, I love it. I love all the weird stuff. Yeah, so I was just having this sort of uh, Twitter correspondence with uh, Alexander Rose, who, who's newest. He wrote Washington Spies and uh, Empires in the Skies, his new book, and it's it's really great. And we were weirding out over our, you know, our research. Uh, I don't know how best to describe it, how we assemble our research and organize it. And so I do it through Excel. Like I, I will read a book. I will take notes on what's on a particular page. If it's a quote that I like or a source that I need to look up or um, a particular explanation that I found very good. Uh, I will put that, you know, if I read a, 300 page book, I may have 30 to 50 lines in my Excel file about what's on a particular page. Same with an interview. If I'm interviewing, for instance, for faster, like if I have interviews with Renee Dreyfus, like what did he say on page two of the transcript about his race in Monaco when he first sort of leapt onto the scene? Like um, similarly with archival material. So it's all put all the, you know, a year, year and a half of research, um, what I've found, what it says, uh, what's particularly interesting, what's unique, what's original, what I found nowhere else is all put into this massive Excel file uh, <laughs> uh, that is probably, you know, for faster, I think it was something like 6,000 lines wow. <laughs> of, of material from everything from, you know, a French newspaper, like I went through French newspapers of the period. Um, what's on, the, what was on particularly March 20th, 1938, what was in the French newspaper, what were the headlines, uh, what did it say about Rene and this great race? Um, and so all that's sort of packed together into this Excel file. And then it's, organ and then I, I take that sort of raw material that I've collected that's interesting and then I, I read through every one of those lines. And from that, I construct the, the narrative, the outline of what's in each chapter, what's the flow between different characters, the timeline, um, you know, for faster, it's, you know, where's Rudy Caracciola, the German driver, you know, how much room does he have versus Rene Dreyfus? Is it two to one that he's in, Rene's in two chapters for every one of Rudy? Um, how do I thread them together, weave them together? So I'm not just reading about Rudy and then Renee sort of is lost. Like, so it's a chapter by chapter and then a section by section within each chapter guide. And so let's, by the time I, I'm ready to write, I know what's in chapter 12, section one. Uh, and I've coded that into my Excel file 
so that when I'm writing chapter 12, section one, my Excel file will spit out, you know, every archive, interview, book page, magazine article that is relevant to that section. And so for me, it's, I read all that stuff and then I write the section mm. and then it's just doing it all the way through the book. And very rarely will I steer away from that. That's, that's incredible. Uh, when, when you're reading, let's say like the memoirs of Rene Dreyfus and, you know, and you're trying to process it in a way to make it fresh and new and, and faster, what becomes the, the challenge in reading some of, some of that sort of primary source material and to not make it just sound like you're merely regurgitating what they've already, what they've already said, you know, what, how do you balance that? Yeah, I think it's, you can, and I, you know, when I read other narrative nonfiction, I, again, I kind of geek out on it too. I'm like, I will be reading sections and I'm like, where'd he get this? Where'd she get this? And be like, okay, did she, is she drawing it all from one book or is he drawing it all from one book? And, or is it this range of sources? But, but because for me, like, for the most part, faster, for instance, like, Renee wrote a very good uh, memoir. It was wasn't terribly exciting, uh, but it, it had a lot of good information in it. It had, it had it, in fact, even dialogue that that he recalled having. So, like, the material is really good, but how do I make that material read in a narrative nonfiction way, meaning how do I read it with kind of a novelist eye? Mm -hmm. How do I present it? And so doing that, taking that sort of primary source material is, is really taking that sort of core. Let's say it's a scene that I'll give it probably better explained it in a specific example. Um, Renee won this competition um, in France uh, in 1937 to be the fastest driver in France, which sort of catapulted him into a position where he could take on the Germans. So he recounts in his memoir that race, uh, it's called the Million Frank Race, uh, in 1937. In his memoir, it covers roughly two, two and a half pages. Not terribly heavy on description. It's more like a couple things on what happened in this lap, what happened right before the race, um, some thoughts. But like I painted that scene in faster over the course of 20 pages, right? And so I knew I had this core primary source material, what Renee was thinking, feeling, but that's not anywhere near enough <laughs> to put readers there yep. and give them a real sense that they're, they're, they're involved in the scene. And so it is threading, to use the word again, um, it is threading that primary source material with the six accounts by French newspaper journalists who were on, on the scene and experiencing it from, you know, an omniscient point of view. Uh, it's taking uh, various other people who were there it's taking um, video of, of, of the event, sound of the event, and, and, and bringing it all together in a way that you don't lose what Renee's feelings were because he told you what he was feeling. But like, that's kind of not very dramatic unless you have the, the world around it. Yeah. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really just getting, getting immersed in it. And it's, um it's kind of like, you know, adding to that is you getting your your boots on the ground there too like uh you know the writer Philip Gerard who's a friend of mine and uh, writes historical nonfiction as well he um when he was writing something for uh about the civil war and the you know the battle of gettysburg like he started at the lower hill and like marched up the hill of pickett's charge and like you don't realize how grueling that hill is until until you actually walk up it and then you picture you know cannon cannon fire going off you know you know rifles firing your way and having to duck behind rocks and all this and then all of a sudden you're there and you can 
be with these men in this position. So it's kind of it's great that you know you you know you, of course you read Renee's account, but I'm sure you also like walked or drove the course, and you kind of had an idea of oh, this is what it's like to be here. Yes, it, absolutely. So yeah, it's it's an immersion in the details, and I was thinking of something the other night it was like. How did you describe the the language? Because at one point I write about you know how the sounds of the engines it sounds like you know a bunch of wailing cats. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And like, how do you get there? And similar to your friend who's who wrote Civil War, it's like it's by reading the all these accounts. So if it's a if it's a war story, it's you know reading diaries until you know your eyes want to sort of pop out of your head um so that you're you're immersed in the language and the sort of cadence and the and the detail uh and so that when you're writing you know in some ways it's it's imitation so you know it's not by no means is it plagiarism uh, but it's it's imitation it's you know it's sort of getting a feel of the language and how people describe things and, and at that particular moment and period of time and place, and then coming up with your own way of saying it that echoes the scene that as it was. Hmm. And when you were writing this book, I imagine it would have been awful tempting to thread in almost uh an an obsessive or an, an excessive amount of Hitler's rise and the rise of Nazism though it's just a it's a subtle backdrop of his rise to power and the symbolism of the silver arrow and what that really meant for the third reich um did you wrestle with how much sort of uh Nazi seasoning to sprinkle through this. So ultimately the story had that villain, but it wasn't rooted solely in the rise of the third Reich. Yeah. And I, to that point, I'd say, you know, I, I maybe say make it the narrative structure sound sort of simple to do, but I think probably of, of any of my books, this one was, was probably the greatest struggle just in terms of how much of, of this, story is Hitler and the Nazi rise, you know, how much do I need to go into uh, Italian fascism? I mean, all these elements are important as context because nationalism infected the Grand Prix uh, in the thirties, just like it did other sport, like the Olympics of 1936, just as it did sort of boys in the boat era. Um, as well as the, the surrounding world. But like, I don't want to just, I don't want this book to be a primer <laughs> on the rise of nationalism. Yeah. This is another rework of it. And in the first draft, it was more that. And I had to remind myself, or actually I had my editor remind me, um, not to underscore how important a good editor is, like what's important for the reader to know in terms of the rise of nationalism as it relates to the context of the story that you're telling, <laughs> not as a separate ent- entity, right? It, you only want to tell the sort of rise of fascism and Hitler as it, as it relates in faster to how it impacted the Grand Prix. And so I went away from, I remember cutting a lot of rise of fascism and going back and sort of, bringing in how that related to Mercedes, how that related to Auto Union, the two major automobile manufacturers at the time who were being funded by the Third Reich. And so it's, again, it's a good reminder, you know, and even though I've written a bunch of books at this point, like I constantly have to remind myself, what does the reader need to know? What's important for the reader to know? Uh, only as it relates to the story that you're telling uh, to, that propulses the story forward, because I'm not writing doorstopper history like doorstopper history has a place, an important place, um, but it's different than the, than creative nonfiction. Um, it's a different style of writing. It's a, you're, you're conveying information differently. Uh, and I, And I believe that sincerely. 
Yeah, and it's uh, something I loved too is just how you know in the face of this, you know, Hitler, you know, basically tears up the Versailles Treaty, and and, and uh, people who might not be too well versed in World War One history might under like why was there this appeasement? And like you wrote of uh, you know people driving through the French countryside and seeing like the scars of the trenches, and is like World War One had just ended, you know, barely twenty years before that and that just the psalm verdun everything was so fresh in people's memories that it's like the idea of another war just could not be fathomed and so that's of course why people just let let germany kind of do its thing and just cross their fingers really no that's absolutely the case i mean i think it was a willful ignorance or (laughs) or turning a blind eye or just believing what you want to believe um, and you know, it's the people in the story of, of faster who sort of step out of that. And in particular, I think Lucy shell did that in a way that was important. Like she, you know, she had her experience in world war one as a nurse in Paris, uh, that informed her view of Germany, the view of the, of the whores that could come from further aggression from Germany. And so that she, that was so important to her motivation. And I was probably 90% of the way through the research when I found that, that she was a nurse in World War One. Wow. Right? Um, I didn't know it, didn't know it. And then I was just doing another kind of dive into Lucy to try to, to get at her because of all the people in the story, she was the, the most challenging to get at. And I remember doing this sort of research. Of, I knew she was lived in Pennsylvania at the time. And so I did a bunch of local Pennsylvania newspaper <laughs> research in, in, you know, from 1900 to 1925. And then I found this article about her uh, experience as a nurse in, in World War I, uh, her feelings towards the Germans. And that sort of like, boom, it opened up a world to me. And so, you know, those those elements of the research and the echoes of what happened in the past and how they inform uh, a person in the story that you're telling are, are super important to connect. Yeah. And, and you've said, uh, I look for stories about people doing what we think is impossible. The stories about ordinary people being put in extraordinary situations and coming through it. And the characters in this book, so many of them fit that mold so well. And maybe you can, Talk a little bit about maybe we can start with Lucy, of course, and uh, what a what an extraordinary character uh, she was. Uh, you know, a marathon racer, and then of course uh, the primary f- bankroller of Delahaye and, and the one forty five that would uh, ultimately uh, uh, beat the beat the Nazi car and in uh, Poe. Yeah. So I, what was great about Lucy is, I mean, I and I'm kind of embarrassed to even say this, but like I've written, I think this is my ninth book and the majority of the stories uh, that I've told uh, are about men and their sort of experiences, whether it's spies or uh, soldiers or runners. And I'd never had a a woman at, at, at the central part of, of one of my stories. And so it was an absolute pleasure to have uh, Lucy shell uh, as that role, because I mean, you just, it was impossible not to write Lucy shell. Um, well, like she just was an absolute dynamo. Um, you know, she was an American heiress. She was rich. She could have lived a sort of very comfortable idle life, but she met this, man who uh, Lori shell loved racing and she decided she wanted to try racing and then just fell in love with racing itself and ended up becoming one of the, the, the great uh, American Monte Carlo rally drivers and, and really getting at the heart of her was, was well, one, the, the nurse story, but also again, this is just the testament to sort of research of like going through these French newspapers day after day after day um, because they're not indexed and finding, I remember when I found it, I can remember that moment vividly. Like I was going through this French newspaper called Intransigent and 
1933 is this article um, where Lucy is meeting this journalist uh, and he's asking her if he can go uh, sit in the backseat of her car as she does the Monte Carlo rally. And so over the course of probably 10 days of newspaper coverage, uh, Jacques Marciac, uh is there in the car with Lucy as she runs eight days, uh, nine days in the Monte Carlo rally. And you just get so much insight into who she was. And and he was a great journalist and so wrote and had all these terrific lines. But one of his best was like, the icier things got, the more dangerous things became. Like Lucy Shell's smile just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And like, boom, you know who she is, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> right there. Like You're like, okay, I understand this person. And just, just tremendous. And so she, you know, when she decides that racing's not, she, she's going to hang up her, her overalls. Um, she decides to, to start her own Grand Prix racing team uh, and take on, you know, very David and Goliath story of, you know, I'm going to take on the Germans because no one else is going to do it. Um, and so she was the first woman to, to do that and own and run her own Grand Prix team. Uh, and yet we know nothing about her, right? I mean, she's a classic one of these, uh, you know, the New York Times runs these profiles of amazing uh, people who never got their sort of due and for obituaries. And I, I feel that way about Lucy. Like she never got her due. Uh, and one of the pleasures in writing faster is that I, I, in some small way, hopefully sort of put her place back in history. Yeah, you're able to note that she didn't get her due even in her day, she was constantly overshadowed by, you know, the, the men in her wing when she's like, no, like, this is my thing right here. I, <laughs> this is my jam. Like, and she, but everyone, the sexism of the day was just like, nah, she, she couldn't have done this. Yeah. I, I, it's extraordinary to me in this day and age. I mean, I should probably even shouldn't say that, but it was particularly for her, she understood the role, right? Like she played it in some ways, like she would be in a race overalls and after a race, she would put her dress on and heels and, and take the glamour shots in front of her car. Like she understood that that was, that was a role she had to play uh, as a, as a female race car driver. And yet when she began to run her own team, it became too much. And I actually found in this, the strangest of places uh, at, this uh, automotive library in Florida, like this letter that she wrote these editorial, these editors of all these French newspapers saying, you know, I am the owner of Ecury Blue. Like, this is my uh, team. I fund it. <laughs> I run it. And yet you are constantly saying that my husband, Lori, uh, is the one in charge. Like, get your story straight uh, or I'm going to boycott you uh, completely. And that was, I can imagine at the time, a very bold thing for her to do. Yeah, and then of course, I mean, there, uh, there's, there's Rudy too, who is dry. His deal with the devil essentially was driving for the Nazis and having the Silver Arrow as his as his car. But he was especially interesting too, like given, I mean, how rudely dangerous the sport was and how deadly it was. He walks away with a shattered leg. And then, you know, something else horrible happens to him and he's just in this grip of of depression. And you note it so well uh, by pulling out a passage from something he either said or wrote that it was just like, you are the will that controls this creature of steel. You think for it. You're in tune with its rhythm and goes on. I had to drive. There was nothing else for me. Yes. And that came from his uh, one of his three autobiographies. And, you know, if you if you listen to those lines, it was about power <laughs> in some ways and trying to reclaim his power, uh, reclaim his sort of sense of like ownership in the world. And when he, when he had the terrible accident in, uh, in Monaco, and then he lost his wife uh, in a tragic ski accident, like there was nothing else in life for him, but racing. And so he was this, you could paint him very easily <clears throat> as this, you know, Nazi banner boy who, you know, was the hero of Reich. But 
it was a much more complicated tale. Like he was not political. He was not, he didn't really subscribe to the Nazi ideology, but he wanted to reclaim the only thing he had left in his life, which was racing uh, and his standing there. And so he went and drove for the, for the third Reich because they were the ones providing the, the, the fastest cars. And he was willing to, to be that poster boy uh, so he could drive, even if he didn't subscribe to the technology. And I think that corrupts him completely. I, I don't want to understate it, but it was a human decision. It wasn't a dastardly, you know, evil character decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love too that I, I read somewhere that you said, um, you know, I asked myself two questions before I start a book. And do I have something new to say about the story? And does the story have something important to say? And uh, I think that's a wonderful starting point. And uh, and when you when you stumbled upon the faster story, how what was the answer to those questions? And how did that excite you as you started to delve into your research? Every story is different. Like some stories, I know at the beginning, I'm like, this is the theme. Like this is what I wanted to. This is what I wanted to say. And like this is an important book to to write. Like Honey Eichmann, uh, my story about. The, the capture of Adolf Eichmann in, in, in Argentina. Like I knew before I knew that I could write, you know, investigate it and like uncover new information. Like I knew thematically, like this was an important story about justice. Like here was this great spy story. And yet it, it gave us the, the reason why justice is so important. Why memory is, is, is part of that. And so that I knew from day one that that was what I wanted to say with faster was a little different, like faster. I sort of fell in love with the idea of the story, the idea of this car, uh, the Delahaye 145, four were ever made. Um, when the Germans invaded, uh, Paris, like they sent people to find these cars and have them destroyed. They went to the automobile club of France and, and took all the records to, to erase this history. Like the idea of that was fascinating to me like just on a pure narrative level like what happened what was it about these cars um and their story that was so important and that brings you to renee dreyfus and lucy shell and 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 everything i didn't know for sure what the answer to those two sort of rubric questions that i always asked myself were at the beginning i very quickly learned that really the story wasn't very well known and that if i could uncover the research that I would be telling a new story. And I think that's exactly what I, what I did with Faster. It's like, this is a story that very, very few people have heard of. Most of the research is original and new. And so that answered the question very easily for me. What thematically it was saying, I didn't really know until I was in the midst of writing it. Like for a long time, I just was like, I know, you know, what is this story about? Um, and it's really the story about what Lucy Shell did. It's like we all can do, you know, in the face of, of injustice or a corrupt regime or uh, inequity or anything else. It's like we can't all be Martin Luther King. We can't all be great national leaders, but we all can sort of stand up in our respective worlds and make a difference. And like that's what Lucy Shell did in her world of racing. She said, no one, the, the Germans are just winning every weekend. It's making the third Reich seem, you know, indomitable, at least in racing. I'm in the racing world. I'm going to make a stand. I'm going to attempt to sort of knock them at least symbolically off their perch. And so thematically that was what I sort of gripped onto. And like, that's the story that I, that I tried to tell. And What's interesting, at least for Rene, the driver, is that he was apolitical, just like Rudy was. Uh, he didn't care that he never really subscribed to his religion. Uh, he was, you know, his father was Jewish faith. His mother was Catholic. He didn't assign it. He was a race car driver. Like, religion meant nothing to him. And so he kind of was the reluctant, quote-unquote, Jewish hero in this story. And Lucy had to sort of bring him in there and make him understand that that sport was had become national and had become symbolic and that 
he needed to sort of step up to the plate. And uh, in in the article that you wrote for LitHub that really dives into a lot of your research practices, I, I went below to read the two comments, and one was kind of a troll. Um, but the other, <laughs> I don't know if you read it, but one, one guy was just kind of a dick. Um, but, uh, but the other, but the other person was, it sound, it came from a place, it was kind of pouty in in a way. And, but, I, but the kernel of the question is really, uh, it, it, it's important, I think. And this is what, uh, he or she wrote, um, they wrote, um, you know, what is his advice, I wonder, for those with a limited travel budget, write about something down the block or just your narrative on or just set your narrative on Fantasy Island. Nonfiction is my favorite type of book to read. Writing one, though, is not so easy. I wish I could be that footloose. And uh, so in any case, this person's just like, oh, you know, in order to write a uh, to write a great story, you must be able to travel around the world. But the fact is there's a lot of backyard narratives, I think. So I don't know, maybe, maybe you could offer a little advice to this person that you don't necessarily have to be a globetrotter to find great stories. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely the case i mean my wife and i've said this in a talk here or there it's like my wife says that i choose my books based on where i want to travel next and you know i i tend to like stories that have an international flavor uh to them i find that they're a little bit untread uh more than american stories but there are you know i live presently in philadelphia um and there are probably a dozen narrative nonfiction stories, whether historical or present that I could, I could go on to tomorrow. Like there is, there, there are stories everywhere. It doesn't require being uh, footloose or spending, you know, assistance or travel budgets or anything like that. I mean, you could tell a, a great story following the Philadelphia uh, police department right now. Uh, or and countering that with the resistance, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, right now. You could be on the ground covering that today, and it would make a tremendous story. You could be in the hospitals uh, covering the, the, the COVID uh, narrative of what the present uh, doctors, uh, nurses, uh, and even medical students like who were sort of pushed to the, to the front lines of, of, of this pandemic, like, What's their story? Like it, that's that's right out, out out of my door. You know, I could walk three blocks and, and do that story. So I think, you know, I think it's really about opening your eyes and being open to to um, the different stories, and and you can find it anywhere. And granted, like uh, Laura Hillenbrand has a pretty um, you know severe sort of medical condition, but she wrote uh, two of the greatest books of the 21st century basically from her house. She didn't, she couldn't go anywhere or travel. She just did it from archival research and phone interviews and look at what she was able to do with Seabiscuit and Unbroken. So, you know, yeah, you don't need to be globetrotting. No, you do not need to be globetrotting. And Laura, you know, is, is, you know, if, if anyone doing this kind of nonfiction, I mean, she, she's, she's the hero, uh, right? I mean, she's incredible. Yeah. She's incredible. Um, and the diligence of her research uh, and uh, the, the way she goes about it and the way she even, you know, the amount of time it takes her to, to, to go through material. It's just incredible. Uh, and, you know, there are so many resources. I remember when I started faster, I mean, higher, my first book back in, you know, 2000, like it was just a very different research than it is today like there's just so much available digitized um that uh there's really you know a wealth of material out there what would you say is like maybe where you feel the most alive and most engaged in the, the entire book process it's a, it's a very good question i haven't thought of that um i would say the first usually the prologue or whether the first chapter, like I write it and I finish it. And then it's really the moment that I'm kind of most excited about the writing and like, Oh my, this is an incredible story and I'm going to kill it. And like <laughs> read, you have to read this. And so it's the only, you know, I, 
I don't intentionally do this, but like whenever I finish that prologue or, or the first, you know, 3000 words, I'm always like sending it to my agent and sending it to my uh, editor. I'm like, here it comes, you know, this book is going to be amazing. I let my wife read it and you know, I'm like, I'm a genius. And this is fantastic. I, I, I've picked the best job in the world. And then usually they write back and say, Oh, it's very good. You know, and, and basically say, you know, uh, and then it's back to the job, right? And then it's like, oh my God, I got 98,000 more words to write <laughs> over the next six months to a year. I'm going to become this miserable hermit of a person. I'm not going to call my parents. I'm going to neglect my wife and my children. Uh, they're going to be mad at me. Um, my agent's going to be asking where it is. And my editor is going to be saying, are you going to hit deadline? <laughs> but that, prologue is you know is regardless of whether it's crap or it's good for me it's gold like i've i've sort of hit the moment it's kind of like the shape of a hammock between two trees like right at the start you're all kinds of high and then it just goes downhill then it's just a sagging uh, slog (laughs) of the middle and it's just you're hanging there but eventually, you go back up. You're like, yes, I can see the end. And there you are again, back on a high after going through that ugly middle. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a very good analogy. It's uh, <laughs> that, that moment in the beginning is a very sweet one. Um, I don't think I, – I, I don't know if I'm most alive in that moment, but it's the, it's the sweetest moment of, of, of each book. Well, awesome. Well, Neil, the faster was such a, a fun, gripping, gripping read, uh, so informative, and just that uh, I really just fell in love with all those characters, and that's a testament to the research and the work you were able to do to bring these people to life. At, you know, nearly a hundred years ago, you know, eighty years ago or so, ninety, um, that they feel alive, and you know, and we, and, and I knew I, I just grew to li- like about like them and care about them so much. So. Uh, you know, thank you so much for the work. And, uh, you know, where can people, you know, get a little more familiar with you and your work? And of course, you know, find the book and buy the book. Absolutely. So, uh, and by the way, this was, was super fun to talk about. And, uh, I love the questions. Like I haven't talked about some of this stuff in a very long time. So that's, uh, I'm glad you brought this stuff up so they can find awesome. my, my stuff, uh, www, if I need to say that, neilbascom.com. <laughs> Um, HTTP colon backslash 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 backslash. They can you know search Neil Bascom n e a l b a s c o m b dot com and uh, my books are there and you can find me you know my social media from there and newsletters and, and that kind of thing and uh, I hope your listeners give faster and some of my other books a, a shot. Yeah, and they sign up for your newsletter too because you give away um, uh, signed book plates, which is really really cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm trying that something different. Uh, you're always trying, you know, different things. And uh, I have these very cool book plates for faster that that I put together. So um, yeah, I'm happy to send them to people. Fantastic. Well, uh, yeah, of course. Thank you so much for hopping on the show, Neil. And uh, you know, best of luck uh, with with the book. And uh, we'll have to do this again. Uh, hopefully not in the not-too-distant future. That'd be great. I'd love to come back. My goodness. That was a fun jam. I thought so. Thanks to Neil for coming on the show. What a trip. Love that guy. Faster is the name of the book. Great book. Go get it. I feel like there's a lot of books around sort of diving into... Nazi times. There was uh, Christina Gaddy's book, uh, Flowers in the Gutter, earlier this year. I have a few others on the shelf I haven't even touched yet. It's really rich. You have a baked-in universal villain. Sometimes that's hard to find in nonfiction. And when you can walk into a villain, well, shit, the fucking Nazis. Don't get much more villainous than that. Be sure you're subscribed to the monthly newsletter where I send out reading recs and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. For subscribers... I raffle off copies of books I receive. As long as you remain subscribed, you're always eligible. First of the month, no spam. Can't beat it. And here we are. We've done it. Even after 206 of these jams, one thing rings true. If you can do, interview. See ya! See ya!